Ovid.tv gathers all of your favorite art house titles, foreign films, and documentaries in one place. Start streaming at www.ovid.tv. This Halloween, we recommend checking out Tracy Moffat's Bedevil, which is inspired by ghost stories the filmmaker heard as a child from both her extended Aboriginal and Irish-Australian family. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Horror movies are the usual choice for Halloween viewing, but we here at Film Comment got to wondering, what are the scariest movies that are not horror films? There are many ways a movie can get under your skin, and it's not always through gore or the supernatural or any of the other varieties of horror you might enjoy. To discuss this notion, I got together with Film Comment regular Michael Koreski and Ashley Clark, senior repertory programmer at BAM. Each of us chose one or two movies that frightened us but don't fall into the horror genre, leading to an intriguing discussion of how movies can frighten you without being, strictly speaking, horror movies. Let's go to the terrifying discussion, and happy Halloween. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is our Halloween podcast. I suspect by now there is spooky music playing in the background that has been added by someone else. Um, at least I hope so. Um, our topic for this year's Halloween podcast is, sum it up in one line, basically. Movies that are scary that are not horror movies. So that's, I guess there could be a variety of reasons why a movie might be scary for you that, that is not a horror movie. But it's it's basically could be a, you know, drama, thriller, anything. Maybe you have a long time phobia. But I think more often it's that the movie is just getting it to you on some other level. Um, and some other variety of terror or dread or anxiety, um, a lot of anxiety, and is working on you in that way. And to discuss this, I, I brought together two very brave podcasters, starting with... Ashley Clark, uh, I'm the Senior Repertory and Specialty Film Programmer at BAM and um, frequent visitor to these parts. Yes, indeed. And we are also joined by... Michael Koreski, um, frequent film comment contributor and all-around person in new york (laughs) (laughs) that that is terrifying um yes it's true it's all true you could turn a corner and just see me standing there (laughs) i just did (laughs) so yeah um, i guess there's a lot of nervous energy because we're about to spill our guts basically about movies that uh have gotten under our skin um i don't know i I thought it might be interesting to start with you michael because you were talking about movies that are more traditionally considered in a, a different light, uh, certainly not as horror movies. Um, so what? To tell us which ones you've chosen and, and, and why. Um, well, first, I just wanted to congratulate you, Nick, on um, making potentially the least fun Halloween podcast of all time. <laughs> and I only say that because once you kind of take the uh, the genre out of horror then you're just left with things that really upset you so i was just thinking about the films that i've selected and that we might be talking about today and the uh, the real world horrors that they reflect and represent and um 
I'm really excited about digging into the things that have been troubling me since I was a very young person. <laughs> Welcome to the therapy hour. Yeah, I should mention Michael is actually reclining on a couch right now. <laughs> there actually is a couch in here. So the first movie that came to mind, actually, I should say that a lot of movies came to mind. Okay. And I think that's because um, movies have a unique quality to haunt people. And they have been haunting me since I was a very young person. So a lot of the movies that I thought of today are movies that have been uh, scaring me for one reason or another since I was young. I am definitely a horror movie fan, but um, um, I, I actually find them, uh, they go down easier because there's like the um, level of removal than mm -hmm. perhaps some of these other films we're talking about. But the first one I want to talk about is something that um, has really upset me and disturbed me for years. I can watch it probably you know once a week if I want because there's so many just purely enjoyable things about it. And interestingly, it's a musical. I don't think there are a lot of musicals that people might think are frightening. Though I guess like um, extreme stylization can be kind of scary. So the only reason we're not talking about Tom Hooper's Cats is because none of us have seen it. Yes, I, I'm I'm fully expecting to have a sequel of this podcast once Cats <laughs> comes around. Devoted um, to the, to the horror of Cats. <laughs> <laughs> but the the first film I wanted to talk about is Bob Fosse's Cabaret, 1972, um, complete and total masterpiece, a movie that I was shown by my mother when I was probably too young. It's one of those movies that, like, for some reason has a PG rating, <laughs> even though everything about it screams um, mature, maturity, adult. Um and I think people who watch it for the first time usually kind of expect there to be this joyousness that is there in the title. It's Liza Minnelli at her most incredible, like everything about it, the mm -hmm. choreography, her voice is, you know, was never better. Um, and I think if you don't really know what it's about, which is basically about the rise of Nazism in Germany in the early 30s, um, you know, you might assume you're in for a good time. But the title <laughs> song Cabaret itself is just like a, 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 like a, a wail of despair. It's, it's the final moment where after you've been watching um, the rise of fascism for two hours, she sings this song that you know is this probably the most um, pathetic balm you can put on a world that's falling apart. Um, so everything about this movie scared me, also because I grew up in a Jewish family where like half the books on the shelf are about Hitler <laughs> and <laughs> all the documentaries that we watched on PBS were about the Holocaust. And so these things were kind of swirling around my brain a lot and so the fact that i was faced with this material in a seemingly commercial um, musical package um, the juxtaposition was extremely disturbing to me and i remember when that movie was over um, my face just had turned to ash and my mom said that i had to kind of like leave the room and be alone for a while even though i was also exhilarated because it's such an incredible film um, though the one scene that I wanted to focus on is the Tomorrow Belongs to Me moment. Hmm. Um, for those who haven't seen the film, about halfway through, when the film seems to be at perhaps its most buoyant because Liza Minnelli's character, Sally Bowles, who's a performer in this third-rate Kit Kat club in Berlin, she is in this relationship with Michael York, Brian. He's an American. I'm sorry, he's a, in the play, he's American. He's a British... Um, uh, tutor who has come to teach English to Germans in Berlin in the early 30s they've entered a relationship even though he's um, 
come out as bisexual to her. And now they are um, embarking on a threesome with this very, very wealthy um, playboy type, played by Helmut Green, who's also wonderful in the recent film, um, the recently restored Ludwig. Um, Mm. So the three of them are kind of off gallivanting in the country. They are heedlessly enjoying the money and the wealth and the, uh, the material goods that this playboy can offer. And so they're kind of forgetting about the real world back in the city and they come upon this um beer garden and as they're talking about their own personal petty relationship problems suddenly a voice starts to sing and it is a beautiful voice beautiful male young voice and they look over to see where it's coming from and it is this perfect looking Aryan blonde youth who has stood up in the middle of the beer garden and begins to sing the song Tomorrow Belongs to Me. What's most disturbing about the song is that it's a beautiful song, right? Kander and Ebb wrote the song to be seductive. And one by one, everybody in the beer garden starts to listen to him and they all start to stand up and sing along. This song is called, again, Tomorrow Belongs to Me. When you first hear it, it sounds like, oh, it's about nature. It's about owning your individualism. By the end, it's very clearly a song about, um, you know, joining the Nazi party. And everybody in the beer garden, except for our two heroes, gets up and starts to sing along. The song ends, in case you didn't pick up on the subtleties, (laughs) the song ends with the the main singer putting his arm up in in a Heil Hitler salute. This is the final sign, basically, that things are going to go in a very particular direction for the country. And once they get back to the city, everything is just really hellish. And and one of the things about the movie is that in between these kind of um, falsely positive songs, these moments that are sung in the cabaret, you see truly horrific snatches of violence. A dog is murdered. A man is beaten to death in the street. Blood starts to flow on the streets. And it's really only a matter of time until this infects the lives of everybody that we're watching. And um, again, like this is, you know, if you know Cabaret, you know, this is basically what Cabaret is about. And there's a lot of pleasurable things about the film, but I've never really been able to shake this movie as a horror film and um, in its own way. And to this day, like I get chills when I think about it. And um it's really funny to see the movie also kind of recouped as, as it's not, it's not considered camp. There's nothing campy about cabaret, but to see it talked about as kind of like this, um, fabulous queer experience. Obviously it has that. It has Liza Minnelli. It has Michael York, who actually was a bit of a crush of mine when I was young, but the film is, um, is really, um, about as scary as it gets, I think. And, clearly something that people should be watching today when you see what's going on in our country and around the world. So sorry to um, ruin everyone's day by taking (laughs) something seemingly so wonderful and, 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 you know, reminding you how truly horrible it is. Yeah. Well, I'll come on to my, my first proper pick in a minute, but hearing you speak about that did um, make me think of a film that I've probably talked about on the podcast before and obviously wrote a book about, which is Spike Lee's film Bamboozled, which again is not um, specifically ever referred to as a horror film, but there are a few more horrific things than um, white supremacy creeping inside a, 
a black man's mind causing him to fold in on himself and destroy himself and everyone around him mm-hmm. um and the way that the film is um is is shot and and cut with such this uh, a random grubby intensity and the way that the imagery builds and builds and builds over 135 minutes um it's particularly distressing to watch in a theater where you can't pause it or you can't walk out or you I mean you can <laughs> you might want to run out but but when you you're you're trapped in a room and you have to kind of um experience the just the, the sheer build up of of imagery and, and unpleasantness it it strikes me as extremely horrific and it's a film that I didn't like the first time I saw it when I was 15 or 16 um and I think I w- I was able to get around my profound profoundly distressed reaction to it by kind of dismissing it as a bit messy and saying well it's just not w- not well put together but it was a film that never left me and that's why 15 or so years later I ended up writing a book about it mm-hmm. um and that it's in that kind of cabaret mold about a film that you what you need to watch today you know Spike Lee was was way 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 ahead of the curve he he recognized not just the the intractable nature of white supremacy in in uh, american culture and media like spreading out in in various ways but also the the coming absurdity and the, the most terrifying thing about bamboozled of all is how i wouldn't quite say it looks passé now but in some of the, in the way that the discourse has gone and and certain characters that have established themselves in the public eye the events in in bamboozled which came out in 2000 which many critics derided as um oh we know this is bad now this is over the this is over the top this is crazy are in fact um it's not the case it's right. a very difficult film to to deal with but it, but it's important in that respect well on also a connection between the two films is as the um the contradiction of what you're seeing and the, like how it's presented to you and how you actually feel, right? They're both movies about show business. Um, they're both movies in which what you're watching is actually incredibly debased, but it's presented in a way that you are confused about your response, right? And that's that that's borne out in the, the way Bamboozled is even shot. Like you were saying, it has this like grubby video look, but when it trans you know changes to those 35 millimeter sequences shot in that gorgeous almost technicolor crisp red and blue i mean it's really disturbing and and when that first um transitions and you see that horrifying face on the stage that slowly opens the mouth of the black stereotypical face kind of like opens up and they come out of the mouth mm-hmm. I, that was one of the scariest things i, I remember ever seeing in a theater yeah, um, completely. The, w- the way the film just seems to come apart, and it, and it goes there in in many ways. Um, when you d- you know you talk about the the beautifully shot blackface performance sequence, and then you get the reaction shots of the audience, and none of them know how to respond, and some are laughing because they think they should be laughing, some are laughing because they genuinely think it's funny, some are horrified, and all of those reactions. Um, project onto yourself as a viewer it's a very difficult film to know how to respond to um but the f- the first film i wanted to talk about is um an extremely strange and disturbing film called eureka um by directed by nicholas rogue uh, k- kind of released in 1983 it was it was shot and completed in 1981 um but the st- mgm um we're going through a takeover um from United Artists, so it got lost in that shuffle, and it never really came out. Nicholas Rogue himself has joked about how nobody's seen it. Um, I, th- I think it went straight to video in the UK, um, and it's essentially that this this story, a big epic three kind of three part 
morality tale um, about a character called Jack McCann, played by uh, Gene Hackman, his wonderful performance by Gene Hackman, truly embodies this hideous character um, who's based on a guy called Sir Harry Oakes, who was um, a gold mine owner and prospector, American-born um, British-Canadian um, prospector, a very rich man, who was murdered um, in his estate in the Bahamas in 1943, and it was like a really brutal murder, and nobody knew what happened. So Nicholas Rogue and the writer Paul Meyersberg, who they'd collaborated on, like, The Man Who Fell to Earth, um, took elements of that story to create this big epic tale of a, a gold prospector um, who is played by um, Gene Hackman, who strikes gold, uh, and there's a wonderful moment on the on the trailer which kind of encapsulates the film, and it's this very stentorian voice, which says, uh, "The moment Jack McCann discovered gold, he died, and that moment lasted a lifetime." And it's Can you do the rest of the podcast yeah, in your maybe. American accent. Um, and really, the whole the whole idea is that what once the guy becomes successful, once he gets what he wants, he dies a spiritual death. So the rest of his life is is leading up to his physical death, which um, Take, comes in this is prolonged murder scene, which is so incredibly... Actually, uh, let me set the context for when I saw it. I'd been at the pub. I'd had a few drinks. <laughs> I came home <laughs> looking for something to watch, and this popped up, like, on my on demand. And I thought, oh, God, I've, you know, Nicholas Rogue, don't look now, bad timing. Um, you know, another it's, truly... It's sick to you know, this guy makes genuinely unpleasant films, right? <laughs> yep. And so I thought, oh, this this might be interesting. And it it just has this unbelievably malevolent force it this there feels something evil about this film um and that is accentuated by its rogue status as a film no pun intended jesus um it's, it's odd status as a film that nobody's really seen or, or talks about but it has this incredible cast of a young mickey rourke joe pesci Teresa russell um an incredible cast and it feels like it should be known but it isn't so it feels like this weird compromised object floating in the ether and it builds to and Rutger Hauer's in it as well the late Rutger Hauer has an amazing cast playing um, Jack McCann's parasitic son-in-law who's leeching his, his life via his daughter played by Teresa Russell with whom Jack McCann has this incestuous relationship it's very you know don't want to give too much away um but it's centered around this brutal murder scene which makes um nicholas winding reffin look like um rainbow or something it's it's <laughs> ridiculous it goes on it seems to go on forever and it's so graphic and brutal and violent that it, it I, I, I was genuinely shocked by it in a way that even like contemporary as I, ma I mentioned reffin there's this sense of contemporary ultra violence things are a lot things are much more permissive now but this comes as such a shock because this is a gene hackman this is Gene Hackman, you know, you don't expect to see Gene Hackman getting blowtorched and beaten and stabbed repeatedly in a scene that seems to go on for about 10 minutes. Um, and there's there's a very funny interview um, with, with Nicholas Rogue, and he talks about how he, 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 he saw this character as strong as a bull, and, and Nicholas Rogue says, you know, it takes a lot of killing to snuff out that life force, which gave him the license to film this insanely grotesque, um, sequence and the whole thing it, it, the whole thing is, is, is strange and uh, I think the reason perhaps the reason it didn't ever come out 
um, be, because you know you've got the Th- Thatcher Reagan alliance, the the idea of a switch towards more like aspirational, extremely conservative culture, and the idea w- with this character being that he he gets what he wants, he is aspirational, and it makes him deeply unhappy. So maybe it's kind of countering a lot of pervasive values at the time and it made the studio very uncomfortable so they buried it but there's something just extremely it's it's not a horror film um it ends with a a truly weird it seems like a 30 40 minute courtroom sequence it turns into this almost melodrama between Rutger Hauer and Teresa Russell I mean I don't again I don't want to give everything away but it's really worth seeing if you can track this down but something about it really got under my skin because because of the obscurity of the film, I'm not sure I'm explaining it very well, but it felt like there's something illicit about it. I was wondering why no one else had seen it. What, well, not not no one, but what, why it was so under the radar. Have either of you guys seen it? I have not. I saw it. There was a weird window. It's been a while, but where it was on, I think it was on Netflix streaming like a, a while back. And then I was like, what is this doing here? How is this here? Um, yeah, it. I, I honestly don't remember it that well, but it, it's, it is does have the feel of something that has been hidden for a reason <laughs> you know like it, in the sense not, not that it should be but just in the sense that it's so disturbing it's you know? so disturbing it's, yeah. it's such a bad object there's also <laughs> um it's like a ludicrously kind of racist voodoo dance sequence which seems to be done without any um any irony whatsoever so that's kind of upsetting on its own terms it has that very nasty undertone yeah. and it just has a this leering prurient quality which seems entirely at odds with the conception of it as a film that was going to be this big swashbuckling epic. It's like, how could you think you could put these elements in a film <laughs> and the people would flock to see it, that it would do well? Um, so that there's something about it being buried, being this strange object that gives it a force, but it's g- genuinely disturbing and yeah. really got under my skin. That's it's interesting. Because th- when you were talking about the prolonged death scene, uh, I, you know, I was thinking about... Um, uh, you know the uh, at first I was thinking about the risks that filmmakers actually take as opposed to you're seeing filmmakers today who perhaps indulge in extreme violence for with no actual risk but then I also think like well why do those filmmakers want to take those risks what drives them to it what is in them that makes them want to do it and then I was still thinking about Bob Fosse um, when you were talking about that because um, every movie he made after Cabaret has very upsetting death scenes I mean all that jazz is basically just like one long death scene um, and, star rating and, and, and I was thinking of star rating specifically mm. because it came out around the same time as Eureka and it's just talk about a bad object it's the thing that people want to pretend never happened just sweep it under the rug this was some sort of mistake but it also was you know a, a very powerful film and that has a lot to say about um, how women are objectified has a lot to say about Hollywood has a lot to say about a lot of things um, but it's also um, the way that he chooses to depict that murder and that death always kind of reminded me of what Rogue was doing with bad timing, actually. And and just the, the, the thought that, you know, you, you've assembled a crew, you've written a script, you got actors on set, and then you're going to just prolong this horror as much as you possibly can. I, mm. You know, it's, I'm, it's, I'm saying without judgment on the artist or the filmmaker, it's fascinating to me what, what drives people to, to make films that way. And, and similarly, you know, it, it does become a, a test for, for, for you as well as, as the viewer. Like, the the idea of being desensitized to to violence and actually finding yourself resensitized as you're watching something whether it's performing a function to make to make violence genuinely horrific but you also can't underscape that i mentioned the word prurience before there's there's that leering undertone to it as well where you just feel there's some there's a sense of pleasure on the person who's constructing this for you 
mm-hmm. which makes it a very unpleasant experience. Also, the actor Joe Spinell is one of the, the goons, one of the bad guys, mm-hmm. who has a face uh, only a mother could love. <laughs> <laughs> I think he, he would have accepted that too. <laughs> um, and expression. it's really, really rough stuff. Yeah. And, and I, I kind of I proceed with caution. I think it's definitely worth checking out, particularly um, for rogue completists. Mm. And it's certainly, it, it, in terms of the, the way the narrative pinballs back and forth, it's a cousin of films like Bad Timing and um, The Man Who Fell to Earth and Performance. You know, it has all of those transgressive qualities formally, but it, it brings something really nasty to the table. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's also interesting what you're saying about when when movies come out and how that affects you know, uh, how, how you're receiving them, you know, coming out in, in the 80s. And I, I just thought of like a couple of Alan Clark things then in the 80s, which are also, I mean, something like Elephant is if, just another a terrifying movie. I mean, of course, does have like physical violence in the sense that it's just a sequence of um, sectarian murders. Um, and, but it's not that, it's not like you're seeing a lot of blood, but it's really just the relentlessness, the, the the way that one just follows after another. Um, and that's not something that people necessarily wanted to see or, or, or you know, then. And that that makes it even, you know, harder to take because you're being shown something that, you know, you're not ready for because the rest of the culture is denying it or protecting it. So there's also that aspect. Like, um, and, and I just think a bit, bit about Bamboozle too. Like in 2000, you know, I still feel like, you know, there was a sense of optimism, like the world hadn't exploded. (laughs) So people didn't necessarily want to see a movie that was reminding them about something, a rot at the heart of the American promise. Well, I I maintain that if Bamboozled had come out eight years later, when Mm -hmm. Obama was elected, Mm -hmm. it would have gone down even worse. Because there was that pernicious Mm -hmm. idea of a post-racial America, you know, Uh we have a black president, everything's great now. The film would have gone. It would have been even more panned. Yeah, people. He'd he'd have been accused of being even more behind the times. That's true. Yeah, you know. I remember at the time seeing that. I I remember I actually skipped a class in college to go see Bamboozled because it was the op- It had opened the past uh, the the previous Friday, and I knew that it was not going to stay in the theaters because it was being buried by the studio. And I went to see it at like four o'clock in an afternoon instead of going to my screenwriting class, which was the best idea i ever could have made um the decision i ever could have made and i was really upset by it and i went back but i really did like it a lot i went back and told everyone to go see it nobody wanted to go see it it's like you oh no it doesn't sound interesting to me oh i've seen it all before it's like you've seen it all before there's never been a movie about this (laughs) literally when someone's asked that definition of horror isn't it you know is when when horror is um codified in terms of genre, it, it somehow makes it more acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're f- staring at like genuine <laughs> human, the horrors of humanity and society, it's not an easy sell. Yeah. Well, um, and, and that almost like, you know, redoubles the horror when you can't get people to see something that's so scary to you. You know, it's, you got to believe me, you know. Right. It's like you're the person on the sidewalk yeah. with, the, with the pamphlets that you've Xeroxed <laughs> that's, that's right. saying the end is coming and yeah. nobody's paying attention to you. Film Comments' Jordan Cronk describes Ovid.tv as the first streaming service whose selection of contemporary arthouse films may prove to be its primary draw. On Ovid.tv, you can watch hundreds of feature films and documentaries from directors such as Claire Denis, Deborah Granick, Shahai Imamura, and Marcel Offels. 
Most of Ovid's films are not on any other service. From now until November 30th, 2019, save 50% off your first three months of Ovid.tv. Just head over to www.ovid.tv and sign up with the coupon code COMMENT at checkout. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan, plus Rossellini's history films, streaming Adam Sandler, composer Fatima Al-Qadiri on Atlantics, and much more. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Well, now I kind of, I kind of feel like mine's going to sound like a, uh, I don't know, teenagerly <laughs> um, scary movie, which maybe it is, but it does come out a little bit out of talking about um, particular eras and and prevailing fears in, in er- eras. Um, so um, for me, it's a science fiction movie, uh, Terminator Two, um, and I mean on on the most basic level, it's it's you know it's part of the like. 80s cycle of you know uh, nuclear holocaust <laughs> fear um, movies um, and you know obviously Terminator had already come out um, I mean we know when I was thinking about it, I was thinking like well obviously some of this is scary like a genre movie is going to be like scaring you in some way but there's just something about the way this movie plays with uh, time and has this real kind of trap of a screenplay um and just this relentless forward momentum um to it um the whole movie is a chase scene and that is kind of exhausting and 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 terrifying so no matter what happens there's just a sense of being chased which is a very like dreamlike you know fear no matter what um so it's yeah i mean this is i i guess this i didn't mean to time it this way but i guess there is a new terminator sequel that is is coming out now you're just shilling for the studio i'm just shilling for the studios (laughs) ka-ching that's right um i don't know what's it called dark fate it's like is it no one is (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah you you know um, anyway just use this coupon code um (laughs) um film comments uh, were pulled um anyway no uh yeah i mean it, it's it's you know if in case you're mi- mixing up which of the terminators it is this is the one where you know arnold is now a good uh terminator um <laughs> so he's come back to save uh, us from ourselves basically um so there are, but but what's great about this movie for me is that there are scenes that are scary in just a very visceral dreamlike way that kind of you know interlocks with the larger just um, the, the larger kind of concept of it. So there's this one terrible like recognition scene that's not a recognition scene. Um, you know where Linda Hamilton is in the asylum and she it's, she's trying to escape. So there are these great parallel narratives. Um, I think it gets somewhat knocked as a movie, but I actually really like the screenplay. Um, and she's turning a corner, and there's just breathless mo- moment where she sees who she recognizes Arnold as, you know, being the Terminator that chased. Mm-hmm chase them before of course in fact she doesn't know that he's all right but they you know they have a little slow motion moment i just thought that it's just this very effective like you know oh crap kind of kind of moment um where everything you feared will come to pass basically the the you know and you know i there's no way i could have timed this either but google did just announce that quantum computing advance uh, you might have uh, heard where they were able to um 
they were able to conduct calculations that are impossible on regular computers with a new quantum computer. Um, that's how they test it, I guess. So it's like generating some whatever, I don't know what it is, let's say a million digit random number within whatever, a couple hours that usually would take a thousand years or something. So anyway, we're on the path. So, um, you know, we're all going to be annihilated uh, at some point. Um, but I don't know. At, at a certain level, I also have to ask myself, why does this movie bother me? But any other given movie where the stakes are the world not bother me as, as much. And I'm not sure I have um, a good good answer um, for that um, beyond like the very dreamlike quality of this, um, you know, the shape shifting kind of kind of villain that that's in it because um, there's a paranoia that, that, that it's able to um, maintain throughout the movie. The sense that anything you're looking at in the material world might actually be, um, you know, the the uh, liquid metal cyborg whatever the heck um so it's it's just a pervasively um you know movie of pervasive dread did it hit you like that at the time or is that something that's kind of built as you've... it's um it it was pretty scary for me at the time and i don't i don't it, yeah it definitely was when it came out in 92 I should, 91 91 okay yeah 91 um it, it it was fairly scary i think i think Maybe there's something about the inevitability of it that maybe as you grow older, <laughs> you, you, you sort of feel more. But yeah, that is an interesting um, question. Because yeah, you, it was at the time, it was sort of just a, a hugely advertised popcorn movie. It launched the trend of, of you know acronym titles. <laughs> that was the first acronym marketing title, as far as I know, um, uh, which was terrifying. Um, yeah, but, D2 you know. The Mighty Ducks was a couple years later. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> That's right. Um, acronym podcast. But yeah, that, that's, 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 one, that's one for the ages. Um, I have to say, like, yes, uh, of course, I saw it like three times in the theater when it came out, and I loved it. And it had moments that absolutely terrified me. But um, I, I, I am going to say, as, as, as perhaps predicted, just because uh, Lynn Littman's Testament had come out some years earlier and completely wrecked my childhood, yeah. um, that was the only nuclear apocalypse movie that sure. could do it. Because it what she did is she set it all in one house and you just kind of watched the family die one by one from radiation poisoning. <laughs> and that was pretty hopeless as well. That, that is definitely terrifying. And no, I mean, of course, I, I, before this, I had seen The Day After, but maybe mm-hmm. again, like as, as a kid, I, I wasn't, I couldn't really grasp, like it looked looked pretty bad <laughs> the world was rubble so it looked pretty bad um but maybe i just needed some liquid metal to drive it home and yeah if you really want to be depressed uh, i recommend threads oh god oh, sure. as well. i've always been too scared to watch threads yeah have fun with that <laughs> yeah or just that twilight Thanks. zone post-apocalyptic episode where he steps on his glasses that's pretty terrifying too Great one of the great horrifying ideas ever devised <laughs> sick cruel man rod serling yeah very very sick um so where does that that does that leave us i guess well well very sick i mean what a transition <laughs> <laughs> well sure do you want me to go into my next one yeah why, why not no one wants to hear me talk about terminator 2 anymore i mean well, I, I have to thank ash for 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 stealing my segue oh, no. um that I didn't think of. So I'm actually thanking you. Um, yeah. The next movie that really terrified and continues to terrify me is Todd Haynes safe. So I believe the segue you're looking for was that because it's, it's about how we're all actually sick though. Where is that sickness? What is it? Is it in our heads? Is it in our bodies? Is it a combination of the two who preys on us because of that? 
does everybody prey on us because of that? Are our marriages shams? Is our life a sham? <laughs> I could keep going. <laughs> it's it's a movie that contains multitudes. <laughs> we are all now lying on the floor, just so you know. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad we can laugh about this because you won't be laughing while watching Safe. And I think Todd Haynes does an amazing thing. <laughs> That's the tagline, actually. <laughs> you won't be laughing while you're watching Safe. Well, you know, the thing is, it's interesting about Todd Haynes is... Uh, most of his other films, as serious as they are, have a certain level of um, have a certain level of um, a, a, a particular kind of detachment or removal that allows you to appreciate them on some aesthetic level, which can give you a distance from the material. Safe, though it's all about detachment of a sort, is not that kind of a film. Safe is just he had such an, a brilliant idea a brilliant idea to, to make this this film, this metaphorical film, at this point in the 90s. He said it in the 80s, the height of the AIDS crisis. Of course, mid-90s was still the height of the AIDS crisis. Come on. And um, what he's doing is he's, he's, um, he's, he's kind of reapplying some of the um, social questions and standards to this tale of this, um, this woman, this suburban housewife in Los Angeles. So I said, it's kind of suburban, I guess. Um, and she's... She's just slowly realizes that she has some sort of a an affliction that she comes to think is a response to her environment. And I don't want to say it starts innocuously, but considering where it goes, comparatively innocuous. And again, like I don't want to go too much into it or give too much away, but the way that the film peels things away layer by layer without ever revealing what any of those layers are or mean and then brings you to the space at the end of complete isolation and catastrophe um, is, you know, I just thought it was one of the most disturbing things I, I had ever seen and continues to be. I can't watch that. I can't even look at images from that movie without getting a chill down my spine. Um, I actually had, I had a Laserdisc player when I was a kid and the, the, <laughs> the cover of the Laserdisc, Terrifying. That, you know, the big as a record album, the cover of that Laserdisc was that image of that um, other patient and Renwood the facility that she ends up in in the last in the last section of the film um walking very very slowly and strangely in this kind of like shuddering um shaky movement across the lawn you never see his face he's he's covered because he's so scared of of germs of the environment of being of being seen um that um that he's you know he's covered head to toe becomes this sort of this phantom this sort of creature who represents the inability to exist in this world what's scariest about that character is that well first of all it's probably where our heroine is heading played by julian moore i I forgot to mention in one of her great most incredibly sadly passive performances but also that character just looks like that thing we all are scared we could become right um whether it's from fear of the other fear of ourselves irrational antisocial behavior or perhaps completely logical rational antisocial behavior we are all possibly going to end up in that form of complete isolation um and the the realization even when i was i said when i was a teenager first and the realization that that is entirely possible for any of us including myself was something that i just could not shake um and identified so completely with that idea and so completely with her and also on top of all this it's 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 a great movie about cults it's a great movie about Mm. you know the kind of um 
the the self cannibalization that comes with like self help groups and kind of new age balms and things that actually um, you know are supposed to help us but don't they just kind of prey on our weaknesses and there's an you know all these incredible scenes when she goes to this facility where she's constantly being blamed for her sickness you did this to you you did this to you mm-hmm. and in a way that could be true because of her environment but mm-hmm. not in the way that she's thinking. It's not just that her husband uses deodorant and their husband, you know, who doesn't use like hairspray. There's something sicker. There's something sicker in the culture that's mm-hmm. there, but you're not going to actually um, diagnose those problems in the culture. Those problems where, you know, um, you know, her condition is one of being a woman in the United States in the eighties. Instead, um, she's going to look at these kind of, um, at remedies for things that might not actually be there, right? So it's the toxins. It's got to be the toxins. At the same time, it could be the toxins, right? <laughs> like, I, once you start talking about this movie, you just yeah. go in circles and circles and circles. And what's most terrifying about it is that there are no answers, but that's never a cop-out because these things are all really prevalent. Yeah. Well, I remember first time seeing it, um, being very struck by the tone of it because I was I was wondering whether it was ever going to slip into satire. You know, you spoke about how mm. it's a great cult movie. I was thinking it might turn into a satire of the New Age cult thing, but it never does. And it always seems like it might give you a way out or there might be some kind of explanation coming, but the explanation never comes. Mm. And then the film just ends. And I remember feeling so shaken by it for it, all the reasons you, you articulate. And I haven't actually, it's a film I haven't dared to watch again. It, it's kind of up there in the, the, the Elephant Man, one and done. I don't need to feel mm-hmm. that sad again. Mm-hmm. I re- it really gave me chills and I thought, I don't want to go there again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Understandably. Yeah, the, it was just the, yeah, the idea of, that humanity is turned into a symptom of something wrong that it can't solve according to the modern framework. And that idea is a consumer, which is also consumer capitalism. It turns everything about you into a symptom you have to treat through a product, which as an AIDS metaphor is also really brilliant, too, because what were people who were dying of AIDS told that it's their fault. Right. And in a broader level, um, just about the idea of connection and joining the conversation, everyone being on Facebook or Twitter and being able to connect, but actually being more lonely than ever. Mm. Um, There was a film called Dreams of a Life a few years ago. By, directed by Carol Morley, which was a kind of docudrama oh, yeah. kind of thing about uh, a lady named Joyce Vincent, who was ostensibly outgoing and popular and died in her flat in North London, and her body wasn't discovered for years. I think it was, it was somewhere, it was two to four years or something. And I remember asking, you know, the director, I said, look, if, you know, if, if this had happened in the time of, you know, Facebook or social media, do you think she would have, people would have checked in on her? And it was like, well, uh, you don't know like probably not yeah because you're constructing a further self um and and safe in a way in in some ways to me as as i remember it seemed to be an interesting prefiguration of that as well mm. L- loneliness loneliness is a, is a profound state and it doesn't hasn't really changed much from the 80s 90s to now if you if you're alone you're alone <laughs> we all just kind of sighed and dropped yeah. our mics <laughs> we're now all locked in separate rooms uh that's where we're at now um but Good god uh, ash just i wanted one thing you're saying about satire that was really interesting because that's often like the pressure valve that you can have to get out of these kind of movies that are terrifying coming in for a close but i think we have one or two one more movies ash you had one more i think that we'd love to hear about yeah i wanted to talk about uh, a film called dead man shoes 
directed by Shane Meadows from 2004, um, which is ostensibly a kind of straightforward revenge narrative um, set in uh, Derbyshire in the British Midlands, um, starring Paddy Considine as Richard, um, a soldier who um, comes back after a stint in the army, comes back after 10 years and decides to, to wreak havoc on the gang of local scumbags who um, terrorised and, and maltreated his brother, um, played uh, Anthony, played by Toby Kebble, who has um, severe learning difficulties and um, his brother is his own, you know, they're very close, Richard and Anthony, and he, he's, he's close confident and Anthony will um, open up to, to Richard while Richard goes around um, terrorising the, these scumbags. Um, and the film, it, you know, it, it comes... At this from a very very regional very claustrophobic um hermetically sealed perspective you never get the sense that anybody's coming to save any of these characters it feels um foreclosed to begin with you you know it's not going to have a, a happy ending there's not going to be any catharsis and something that that strikes me as really um interesting about the film is how your sympathies swing um, th- throughout, because your your supposed avenging angel, um, the Paddy Considine character, is barely relatable at times, and his anger seems way outsized um, to, to to the actions that he's performing. And the local band of scumbags are so pathetic that you almost feel for them. Um, but it really comes out of um, you know, I've, uh, listening to to Con- Paddy Considine and Shane Meadows who wrote it together. It comes from their own experience growing up in that area near Nottingham and seeing these, what they described as low-level atrocities that had kind of gone unnoticed, um, bullying and persecution done almost in, in the, the name of leisure um, because people had nothing better to do and there, there are no consequences meted out for these things. And you see lives being, you see people being kind of brutalized in a very casual way um, and the film really captures this in in grimy detail, but with a moral complexity that I find really, really interesting. And, and it really goes there. Um, there. There's a fantastic sequence where Richard um, drugs the um, a, a, a group of the, the, the so-called villains, and he, he spikes their their drink and takes vengeance on them when they're all high. And it's one of the most prolonged and disturbing sequences of violence I can remember because they don't know what's going on so they're reduced to the level of helplessness that that his brother has been uh, reduced to Mm. Um, but something that was uh, this film really haunted me I found it incredibly um, depressing and almost in in the way that depressing but in a in a in a a invigorating way in that British genre cinema doesn't normally reach those those levels and I found it very engaging Um, but I was interested by looking up on, on Rotten Tomatoes and, and Metacritic US sites, it really didn't do anything here. People people didn't respond to it at all. It has a an alarming fifty seven percent fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> which almost caused me to That's how you know a movie's just you not. No, I had it. to think about my own response to it. But it's pretty well regarded in, in the UK as a, you know, modern kind of cult classic. Interesting. Yeah, no, you know, it didn't make an impression. Re- I, I really did. highly regarded. I, I have a, a review here from one Timothy Knight of real dot com. 
who says, unfortunately, the absence of emotionally engaging characters combined with the cast's thick, unintelligible accents <laughs> undermines what would have been a taut and provocative exploration of the moral price of vengeance. Mm. So, you know, th th there's something about the very radical regionalism about the film. It's not a, it's not a glamorous film in any way. Mm. I, I mean, I imagine that people from the area, from, from Derbyshire, aren't especially thrilled at the representation of their... Their, their community but um it just it's another film that you know when, when i was asked about this podcast that i think the, the, the way i defaulted to was films that got under my skin in some way that, mm -hmm. that show you the to, to, to use a terribly overused phrase the banality of evil and this is one of the most banal depictions of of evil that i think i've ever seen and it feels like it could just be around the corner mm. um and it's it's a very sad film and it has a twist um that surprised the hell out of me the first time I saw it and, and makes the film very rewarding to go back to. I don't know if either of you guys have seen it. I've seen it, but I can't remember the ending now. Um, I have not, so don't tell me. Yeah. Um, I, but I do remember, I mean, that's that he did more than one film with Patty Considine, right? Didn't he, I feel, or no? Yeah, he did He did a... Um, a my favourite film of his, actually, is a film called A Room for Romeo Brass, where oh, uh -huh. Paddy Considine plays a unsettling older brother figure to two young best friends and kind of drives a wedge between them. It's a really strange, interesting, unclassifiable, and ultimately quite beautiful film. Um, he also made a film called Once Upon a Time in the Midlands, a kind of spaghetti oh. western spoof, which didn't quite work for me. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah. But he's, he did This Is England, which then turned into a TV show, and then right. recently The Virtues. But Shane Meadows, very interesting British director, and I think Dead Man's Shoes is uh, well worth watching. Yeah, and, and, and I just mentions Patty Considine because he is an actor carries around a particular dreadful tension no matter what he does well, yeah, I mean I, I didn't even really get, get to that yeah. but there's there's some very horror yeah. horror-esque tropes in the film like he yeah. as an avenging angel he turns up wearing a kind of gas mask huh. uh, and the guys are like this bloke looks like a fucking elephant <laughs> oh, he's got these fucking big eyes man yeah. you know like, and, and they're, they're really scared of him yeah. and the film does have some kind of more standard horror imagery mm -hmm. but he himself has a very very punishing intensity to him yeah. and he's able to switch between chummy and matey and genuinely terrifying at the drop of a hat and yeah. his performance really carries the film so I'm glad you brought him up specifically yeah and just and, and uh, yeah I feel like a Fear, fearsome, fearful vulnerability that, that comes through that all that makes it more <laughs> un unnerving. Um, it's a very human film, ultimately. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we probably should wrap up, but just since you mentioned the banality of evil, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not even going to try to start. But, uh, you know, other <laughs> when I was look, thinking of films that came to mind, you know, one of them uh, was The Act of Killing um, and just generally... Oh. Just generally, um, the various really accomplished films, documentaries about uh, genocide, that um, those are also movies that, uh, I mean, it almost sounds like too obvious to say, but um, yeah, I, I turned into uh, Kyle MacLachlan, Blue Velvet, <laughs> why are there people like Frank <laughs> kind of thing? Why, you know, anyway, because they, they just the reduced me to puddles, the, 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 the fact on, on a massive level that that, that happened. Happened. Because of the high concept of that film, the you know the recreation aspect of film, mm -hmm. I I I um I did 
find the follow-up the look of silence oppenheimer's film to be actually more terrifying and effective because mm-hmm. i didn't have that um aesthetic distancing, distancing. Right. Yeah. yeah but the first you know the first time i saw active killing um was a, a nine o'clock press screening at the berlin film festival and i knew nothing about it oh. and i i will never ever forget the look on um the crowds including myself the faces coming out of that press screening mm. at eleven thirty in the morning because it really is, you know, to, to be sat there with the the victors, history written by the winners right. um, in this burlesque, de- genuinely um, unsettling. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, 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 it has been criticized and I think fairly, I think some of the discourse around that film has been really productive mm-hmm. and, and I, m- my thinking around the film has, has changed and developed. I, th- I think it's a, phenomenally powerful piece of work and I, I agree with you I think the look of silence is perhaps even more powerful and perhaps the better film but again for that sensory shock yeah um, there's there's little little compares to that to the first time I saw that yeah that's so that's so right history according to victors it, it's like a real you know real life dystopia that the sense of the outcome of that film um, yeah just to end on a different note <laughs> please <laughs> um, I just wanted to say something that um, the movie that has always really terrified me because I think it's one of like the most disturbing <laughs> shadowy portrayals of um, kind of straight white maleness and the tyranny of that is Dead Poet Society. I think that movie is absolutely horrifying beginning to end <laughs> and I'm not inspired by it and I'm upset by it. And I've been horrified by it since I was very young. It's shadowy. It's creepy. It's full of whispers and echoes and weird hallways. It makes all the, it tells all these little boys what they're supposed to be and what a man is supposed to be. And I was, and it of course ends in this really, really tragic, terrible suicide mm-hmm. that where a father drives his son to because the son wants to be creative. I think that is one of the scariest movies ever made. I don't even know if it's was intended to be as scary as it is, but Jesus Christ, Dead Poet Society. Yeah, don't get it near me. <laughs> I think we need to have a whole other chapter of movies that are terrifying, but don't necessarily intend to be terrifying. We bought a zoo by Cameron Crowe. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll we'll leave on that note. We don't want to just strike the fear of, of God in you, so that's that's yeah, as, as bad as it gets. Um, but thank you both for going down the trail of terror. Thank you, kind of. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Angie. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Ovid.tv gathers all of your favorite art house titles, foreign films, and documentaries in one place. Start streaming at www.ovid.tv. This Halloween, we recommend checking out Tracy Moffat's Bedevil, which is inspired by ghost stories the filmmaker heard as a child from both her extended Aboriginal and Irish-Australian family.
pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.